All right, well, I'm happy to be back in Romans today, and what a great reminder of the gospel we just saw, right? Uh, As we get our hearts back into the whole sort of flow of thought in the book of Romans. We're just going to do Romans 8, 26 to 30, Romans 8, 26 to 30, uh, that we are called to be filled with assurance, with assurance as Christians. In fact, uh, the great theologian D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the former medical doctor become preacher in the early 1900s, said that the main point of Romans 8 is actually not the Christian life, it's specifically that of assurance. He may have overstated the case, but nevertheless it is a huge part of what Romans 8 is all about. Now when I say assurance, what I mean is a confidence, a, a security that we belong to God, that we receive his love and that we will be with him in glory. That we can live with that sense of assurance. Not all Christians throughout church history have believed that we should even have assurance. Some have seen assurance as a bad thing. That to be assured of your salvation is to be complacent. We should live with a constant sense of dread and a constant doubt whether we'll ever actually get there. Uh, The Council of Trent, for example, after the Reformation, explicitly condemned assurance. Here are the words of of Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, and you're probably saying, Pastor Rick, I have no idea who Cardinal Bellarmine is. But Bellarmine was Pope Clement VIII's personal theologian, one of the most able figures of the Counter-Reformation movement. Bellarmine said, the greatest of all Protestant heresies is not justification by faith alone, or anything like that, scripture alone, the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. And yet, I think we find in scripture, all over the place, these gifts assuring us that we can live with a confidence of knowing we stand in right relationship with God, we'll be with him forever. Look with me at Romans 8, 26 to 30. We have this gospel, and now as Christians we can live with assurance. We read this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the preaching and the receiving and the application of his word this morning. Here's where we're going. Uh, Verses 26 and 27, the Spirit intercedes. The Holy Spirit intercedes. Verse 28, that most commonly quoted uh, verse, God works all for our good. 29 to 30, his purpose is planned. First thing he does is tells us again about the Holy Spirit. Remember, 
Chapter 8 of Romans talks about the Holy Spirit all over the place. And so here he now reminds us once again of another form of ministry that the Holy Spirit does for us. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. The assumption is we are weak, at least at times, that we need his help. He helps us in our weaknesses and specifically in the area of prayer. When we do not know what to pray for, the Spirit intercedes. You may say, well, I thought it's the Son, Jesus, that is our intercessor before the Father. Yes, in terms of our salvation, it is the Son, Jesus, who is the intercessor, the high priest before the Father. But here we learn about the ministry of the Spirit interceding for us in prayer. And he intercedes, as he says here in verse 26, with groanings too deep for words. When we don't know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit brings groanings to the Father that are too deep for words. We'll talk more about that in just a bit. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts, that's the Father, that's God, our creator. When he, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Of course, he's part of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, if the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and the Holy Spirit knows our hearts, our soul, and all about us perfectly, better than we even know ourselves. and he intercedes to the Father, the Father always knows the mind of the Spirit. He knows our needs. He knows what we, our longings are, and what our prayers really are. We see here is another form of groaning. <laughs> so chapter 8 has been kind of called the groaning chapter. There's uh, three groanings in Romans chapter 8. We looked at this, so just kind of a reminder. I know it's been a, a few weeks since we've been in the book of Romans. But earlier, earlier on, we learned that creation groans. That means all of God's created order, all non-human creation groans. It's described as groaning with the pains of childbirth, <laughs> subjected to futility, in bondage under the fall in sin. Uh, we learn that right from Genesis, by the way. Thorns and thistles it will produce for you. Uh, it's not a, 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 the earth is, not, is also under a curse now. I think we could extend that. We talked about this to natural disasters. Hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, right? The, the world is groaning. These are birth pains. It's not as it should be. It's not as God originally intended it to be. We could add pandemics to this. And even just the way nature is constantly fighting and killing it itself. Creation groans, awaiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Like when that, when someone has groans with childbirth, um, I don't know what it feels like to give birth to children, but I've watched my wife go through it a couple of times. And then finally the birth of the child comes forth and there is celebration. Creation is grown. We don't groan when everything is healthy and good. We groan when there's something wrong. Something's off, right? You, 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 get, you go for a run, and the next day you try to get out of bed, and you feel the pain in your knees and your ankles and your legs, and you get out of bed and you say, oh, that's a groan. <laughs> Something's hurting and off. It's not just creation that groans. We groan. Our bodies are said to be groaning. Because we're part of this fallen and broken creation. How do we groan? We're dying. We're decaying. Did you know that we're dying as soon as we stop growing? So we're growing and maturing and we go through 
you know, as young people, we go through puberty, and after we sort of stop growing, from that point forward, we begin a process of decaying and heading towards death. That's why professional athletes, by the way, they hit their peak in their 20s, right? Very, very few athletes can play at that level beyond their 20s, unless you're Tom Brady, right? He's sort of the exception there. But for the most part, we begin a process of dying almost immediately after we stop growing. Our bodies are groaning and decaying. But most shockingly, he describes the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as groaning. Now, why would the Holy Spirit groan? There's nothing wrong with the Holy Spirit. He's not decaying. He's not dying. He's not under bondage in any way, shape, or form. He's groaning in our behalf. Because we are adopted as sons of God, and we're in relationship with God, but that relationship is broken still by sin. It hasn't been yet fully revealed, as it will in the last day. So the Holy Spirit groans in our behalf in relationship to the Father. By the way, just one more, yet one more thing the Holy Spirit does for us. So I mentioned before, the Holy Spirit is a part of creation, and he is the presence of God in all of creation. He's the one who uh, regenerates us. Jesus said the wind blows where it pleases, so it is with the Spirit of God. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. He's the one who sanctifies us, that we grow in holiness like Jesus. He's the one who convicts us of sin and leads us to repentance. He's the one who encourages us and comforts us. He's the one who bears the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, and so forth. He's the one who equips us with spiritual gifting to do the work. He's the one who keeps us persevering faithfully to the end and shows us the love of Christ in our worship. And yet one more thing, he intercedes for us in prayer with groans too deep for words. Now, what's this all about, this groaning uh, with too deep for words? Some have seen here a reference to speaking in tongues. Um, I don't think that's what he's getting at. I'm not against speaking in tongues. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I don't think that's what he's talking about here in this context. In fact, I think it's actually clearer in the Greek than it is in the English when it says groanings too deep for words. The idea behind it is literally silence. No words. Not ununderstandable words, not unutterable words, not, uh, not, no common tongue that needs to be interpreted or something like that, but something that we can't actually even bring our words to. What is he getting at here? As he says here, when we don't know what to pray for. You ever been there? I don't, I don't know what to ask here, God. Something's off, something's wrong, but I don't know, I can't put my finger on it. I don't know how to even make the request. Maybe you're struggling in a marriage. I don't know, I don't know what is exactly is going on. I don't know specifically what to pray for here, God. But you know. Struggling in your parenting, trying to raise a kid who's maybe being a bit rebellious, and you say, I don't, I don't know what's wrong. I don't know what to do. I don't know. But you know. And he intercedes for us with words, with groans too deep for words. Some people say, I, I can't pray because I don't, I'm just not eloquent. You know, I listen to some people pray here on Sunday mornings and um, it just seems so eloquent and beautiful and don't worry about that. Go to God in prayer and the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. We pray for the wrong things sometimes. We, we pray with our very limited perspective. God, would you, would you provide this opportunity to take this job out in California, Right? 
Maybe that's God's will, maybe it's not. As it says here, the Spirit intercedes according to the will of God. I look back on my life, I am so grateful that God did not answer a lot of my prayers. <laughs> right? I'm so thankful that he heard my prayers and said, no, Rick, that's not what I'm going to give you. I'm very thankful that God did not answer all of our prayers because God knows better than us. <laughs> and he does what he does according to his will. The Spirit of God intercedes. Let me just say one more thing, too. We are still broken in our sin and we pray things that are not good or with wrong motives or we come to God in our imperfections and yet God still hears us. Why? Because the Spirit cleans it up and he lays those requests before the Father in the right way. Paul is trying to give these Romans assurance. You're not perfect. You don't know what to pray for. Your prayers are going to be filled with all different types of wrong motives. But the Holy Spirit who dwells in you will intercede, and the Father knows the Spirit perfectly. So take confidence, be assured, rest secure in Him. We come here to verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. God works all things together for our good. Now, He's speaking specifically here to Christians. Um, this promise isn't to every human being who exists. This is specifically for those who love God. And by the way, those who love God refers to all Christians. He's not referring to those Christians who love God and those Christians who don't love God. Uh, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't love God, right? That's an oxymoron like Microsoft works or a government organization or a military intelligence, right? They don't fit together. Okay. A few little giggles and laughs. That's all I got for that one, huh? All Christians love God. It's a response of our call. Those who are called according to his purpose. But notice it says here that God works all things together for our good. Now it's easy to see the good stuff and say, well, God's working the good stuff for our good. You know, God is in control of the day I was born and the family I was born into, and he works that for my good. God is in control of the person I married 21 and a half years ago, almost 22 years ago, and he works that for my good. He's in charge of my two kids, Isaac and Sophie. He's in charge of the calling to ministry, to be a pastor. God is working all those things for our good. It's a little harder to look at the bad stuff that happens in life and say God is still sovereignly in control of those things as well, and working them for our good. And that includes the big stuff, like Russia invading Ukraine, will ultimately be for the good of his people there in Ukraine and around the world. It includes things like COVID-19 and the devastation that has caused health-wise and economically around the world. God is working that for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And it includes the small stuff, the struggles that we face, the sicknesses that we deal with, getting a flu or a cold as a reminder that this is not our home. Or waking up last Sunday, coming out and getting ready to go to church and finding a flat tire, which is what happened last Sunday, and having to change it real quick to get everybody to church in time. God is working that for our good. He is sanctifying us through all that happens in this world. 
The big stuff, the small stuff, the good stuff, and the bad stuff. So you're saying, Pastor Rick, that God is using sin for his purposes? Absolutely. I remember one time I was in a Bible study and I said, I asked that question, can God use even sin, either our sin or others' sins against us, can God use that for his purpose? And one person, um, I think it was Nate Osgood, for those who remember Nate, who said, if he doesn't, he can't work with any of us. (laughs) That's all there is. If you take that out of the picture, there's nothing left. Does that make God the author of sin? Of course not. But God is so good that he can take even our sin and turn it to his greater glory and for the good of his people. God has a plan. God has a map. If if you go to Ecuador in 2023, um, I'm going to make sure David and Monica are with us. I don't want to be wandering in the rainforest by myself. Uh, I don't want to be aimlessly walking around in Ecuador. My Spanish is not very good, for one thing. Uh, We want to make sure there is a plan. There is a guide. There is a clear direction that we were heading. There is a GPS. Right? This is how you know if somebody is under 50 or over 50. If, if you ask for directions, someone over 50 says, you take a right at Main Street, you take a left at this street, and so forth. If you're under 50, you say, just give me the address so I can put it in the GPS. Right? And if I'm speaking to somebody over 50, I'll say, just give me the address. They give me the address. I say, okay, I'll put it in my GPS. And then they tell me, take a right at Main Street and take a left. I say, I don't need that. I got it. The GPS tells me all of that. God has his purpose and his plan and he's working it out. Life is not left to a roll of the dice. It's not left to mere chance and happenstance. He's working all things together for our good. We will see it clearer in glory. Even the hard stuff like grief and cancer and sickness and loss. We can rest assured that he's in control. He begins to tell us this plan a little bit in this third section, verses 29 to 30. His purpose is planned. His purpose is planned. And he goes through what is sometimes called the order of salvation or the ordo salutis, how God has worked out his plan. And this is what he says, for those whom he foreknew. By the way, foreknowledge here refers to a, an intimate, relational knowledge. This is not head knowledge. It's not information that God has collected in eternity past. He knows us. In the Bible it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she gave birth to a son. (laughs) That's more than head knowledge. That's intimate knowledge. That's relational knowledge. God knows us. And then he says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. Friends, don't say, if you're a Christian, don't say you don't believe in predestination. It's in the Bible. (laughs) If you believe the Bible, then you believe in predestination. Now, you might say, I don't believe in Calvinism in the whole sort of picture that is revealed there in that theological framework. But predestination is a biblical term, and it's a good one. (laughs) It's a really good one. It's given for our encouragement. Those God foreknew in eternity past, he predestines to what? To something very specific in this context, to be conformed to the image of God. Of his son. In other words, for those God willed, those God knew before all creation would belong to him, he predestined that we would become like Jesus. And in doing so, Jesus would become the firstborn among those from the dead. That he'd be the firstborn among many brothers. All those who follow in faith 
in Jesus, become like him in our sanctification. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Now that's when it happens in real time. (laughs) So foreknowledge, infinity past, predestined well before us. Calling is when you actually hear the good news of the gospel in real time and respond to it by faith. And those whom he called, he also justified. We've been talking a lot about that in Romans. To be justified is to be declared righteous, to be saved, to be put into a right standing with your God and creator, to know him as father, as an adopted son or daughter. Those God calls and who respond by faith are justified. And one more step. He says those who are justified will also, are also glorified. Now, the interesting thing is the, the term glorified here is in the past tense, just like everything else. It's as if it's already happened. And most commentators say, and I think they're right, the reason why he puts it in the past tense is because it's so certain and sure. If God foreknew you and God predestined you and God called you and God justified you, he will glorify you. Right? He will not sort of not finish the job. God will finish the job that he started. Your salvation, your response to the gospel by faith is something that predated you. It predated the day that you received Christ. In fact, it predated the day you were born. In fact, it predated the day you were created or human beings were created. It happened in the very mind, in the heart of God. And if God started it back then and brought it into existence in your life, called you in real time and justified you, he will finish the work. You will be glorified. You will be with him. He's given us the confidence here, friends, of knowing that if we're his, we belong to him forever. By the way, that's the way predestination is used in the scripture as an encouragement, never as a weapon to sort of tear down those who may or may not be predestined or something like that. We don't have no idea. That's, that's the mind of God. It's not our prerogative to even understand those things. It's given to us as an encouragement to say, God knows you. He loves you. He's called you. And in the end, you will be with him. Friends, we are called to assurance. We're given multiple different reasons to be sure of our faith. In fact, assurance is a great blessing. It's one of the greatest blessings of the Christian life. As the hymn writer said, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. A foretaste in this life of what it would be like to be with him. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, and washed in his blood. I think it's wise for Christians to pursue assurance. Not only can we have it, we should pursue it. Second Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, to make it sure. We should pursue it as something worthwhile to live with the confidence of knowing that we belong to God. Does everybody have it? No. Can you be a genuine believer in Christ and not have assurance? Absolutely. Can you have it in one season and lose it in a different season and regain it again? Absolutely. J.C. Ryle, who wrote a lot about assurance, said this, I know that many have never attained assurance at whose feet I would gladly sit both in earth and in heaven. Many godly men and women have lived life never being absolutely certain of their salvation. And they walk closely with the Lord. But it's a great gift, and why would we not want this? I find one of the most common illustrations that applies to the Christian life 
is parenting. I want my kids to know that I love them. I want my kids to know that I love them even if they mess up. I want my kids to know I love them even if they crashed the car and they took it and they weren't supposed to. And no, don't look at my son. That didn't happen. I'm just picking a circumstance that could have happened. Now, is there a relational punishment, discipline? Of course, that's part of the Christian life as well. We read that in Hebrews. But I would rather have my kids walk through life knowing that their parents love them unconditionally. To be free of that worry. That's what God gives us. A confidence, a security, that knowing that we are his and nothing in heaven and earth, not sickness and health, not the present nor the future, nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of Christ. But we'll get to that next week on Mother's Day. That's the next section. I think the reason why some throughout church history have been hesitant about this very issue is they are fearful they're fearful that if somebody has assurance, they'll grow too comfortable. They'll grow complacent. Uh, they won't take sin seriously. They won't recognize the holiness of God. And in that sense, Bellarmine and these folks, they have a point. We should never, ever take lightly the holiness of God. God is holy, holy, holy. Actually, you know that in the Hebrew, there's no word for very. Uh, the way you say very, if I want to say something is very holy, I would say it is holy, holy. If I wanted to say something is very, very holy, I would say it is holy, holy, holy. And the only characteristic of God, the only attribute that is described thrice like that in all the Bible is the holiness of God. God does not take sin lightly. And the sinful, sinful humanity will never look upon his holiness unless, unless we have a worthy savior. Unless we had one who died in our place. Unless we have a substitute who put aside his glory, entered into our world, and took upon himself our sin to redeem us. Then in him, we can be rest assured. Assurance has been one of the greatest blessings in my own life. I'm fully confident, in this season of life at least, and I hope it lasts, if I were to die today, I will be with the Lord. No doubt in that. You might say, but... Some might say, at least, Pastor Rick, that's kind of arrogant, isn't it? How can you be so sure of that? Oh, because it has nothing to do with me. (laughs) It's not because I'm such a righteous person or anything like that. It has to do with the fact that my Savior is enough and his grace is sufficient. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But he's also merciful enough to give us a Savior and in him we rest and are secure. Pray with me. Our gracious God, thank you so much for your presence with us and for the wonderful gift of assurance. Lord, perhaps there are some here who who struggle with this very issue. They, They live with a fear that maybe you don't love them. Or maybe their sins will be too great in the in the last day. Or maybe doubts are continually plaguing them. 
Father, remind us again and again of your great love for us. The Spirit intercedes. He is with us, cleaning up our prayers and bringing them before the Father. You are working all things together for our good. When things go bad, it's not because you don't love us. It's not because you've abandoned us in any way. It's that you're using these things to sanctify us. And Lord, help us to know that what you began before we even were born, you will bring to completion. For those you foreknew, those you foreknew, you also predestined to be conformed to the image of your Son. Those you predestined, you, asked, you called in real time, in our lives, when we heard the good news. Those you called, you justified, and those you justified, you will most certainly glorify. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.